Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, January 21st, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on day 107 of the siege upon Gaza. United States President Joe Biden is fueling a regional war in West Asia. Ethiopians are celebrating an Orthodox Christian holiday in the Horn of Africa state. And the Republic of Sudan has withdrawn from the Regional Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGAD. In the second hour, we look at the cost of the siege upon Gaza. Later, we listen to an interview with the Vice President of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Finally, we review the character of relations between the African Union member states and the People's Republic of China. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Umkaltum Orchestra. Uh, this is... Um, taken from a 1959 Radio Cairo live concert broadcast. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
وهذه الصيحات صيحات الاستحسان من الالاف المحتشده في حديقه نادي ضباط القوات المسلحه تنتهي هذه الفقره من حفلنا الساهر ايها الساده والمواطنون هذا الحفل 
الذي اقيم احتفالا بالعيد السابع للثوره المجيده ثوره 23 يوليو الان وقف السيد الرئيس والساده الوزراء واتجهوا الى المبنى الرئيسي للنادي حيث سيخضر الرئيس وصحبه بعض الوقت للراحة ثم يعودوا مرة ثانية الى الحديقة ونعود معهم الى ام كلثوم حتى ذلك الحين ستستمعون الى نشرة الاخبار من دار الاشاعة الى ان نلتقي اتمنى لكم ايها السادة وقتا طيبا Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Sunday, January the 21st, uh, 2024, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was uh, the Um Kaltum Orchestra uh, performing uh, over Radio Cairo, uh, recording from 1959. Right now, we would like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the ongoing siege of the Gaza Strip in Palestine. On the 107th day of the Israeli genocidal war against the Palestinian people of the Gaza Strip, thousands uh, remain trapped beneath uh, the rubble or across streets, uh, inaccessible to civilian ambulances or civilian defense teams. Gaza's help... (coughs) Gaza's health ministry announced uh, earlier today the 107th day of genocide in the Gaza Strip that the total death toll of Palestinians killed by the deliberate and indiscriminate bombardment of the by the Israeli occupation uh, forces on the Gaza Strip has risen from 25,105 martyrs, so while the number of injured has increased to 62,681 people. As part of its bloody aggression on Gaza, the Israeli occupation committed 15 massacres, claiming the lives of 178 martyrs and injuring 293 people in the past 24 hours alone. As the case uh, has uh, been since the early days of the Israeli occupation war on the Strip, thousands of victims remain under the rubble, while some of those killed by the Israeli fire remain stranded on streets that continue to be inaccessible to neither civilians nor ambulance and civilian defense teams, and that's according uh, to the Al Mahadeen television network. Several Palestinians were martyred by Israeli airstrikes on Khan Yunus in southern Gaza when Israeli aircraft executed attacks uh, earlier this morning, marking the 107th day of the genocide. Medical sources explained that occupation warplanes targeted the Al Amal neighborhood west of Khan Yunus, killing several civilians and wounding dozens. The occupation's artillery shelling continued targeting the vicinity of the Nasser Hospital in, Al- in Khan Yunus, while uh, war boats bombarded the coastal areas of the cities of Deir al-Bala and Khan Yunus. Al-Mahadeen's correspondent uh, in Gaza reported that the occupation forces also fired smoke uh, bombs and artillery shells on the Al Manara neighborhood uh, southeast of Khan Yunus. Warplanes also bombed the Jabalia refugee camp in the northern Gaza Strip, resulting in a major fire in one of the homes and factories near the targeted location, and also struck a house in the Al Shakti camp just west of Gaza City. In other news, uh, after more than 100 days into the 
Israeli Defense Forces siege on Gaza, President Joe Biden in the United States uh, has expressed his unwavering commitment to Israel's genocide in Gaza. Has, he has so far cost the lives of an estimated 32,200 Palestinians, according to this report, from Electronic Intifada, as written by uh, their correspondent, Maureen Claire Murphy, put the integrity of international law to the test and is now seemingly threatening the United States' own interests as Washington escalates a regional war that it claims it does not want. Biden has firmly positioned himself as a full partner to Israel's military campaign, despite acknowledging more than once the indiscriminate nature of its bombing in Gaza, essentially admitting to aiding and abetting in war crimes. Accordingly, uh, Biden and his secretaries of state and defense are being sued uh, for their failure to prevent a genocide and their complicity in the genocide unfolding in Gaza. The Biden administration's, quote, no daylight, unquote, unconditional support for Israel has provided so much leeway that Tel Aviv has no way of climbing down from its stated war objectives, despite having achieved none. Dozens of captives remain in Gaza, and Hamas' command and control appears to be intact, to say nothing of the resistance being waged by multiple factions against Israeli ground forces. No victory is on the horizon for uh, the Israeli state, to say the least. The United States is putting itself in a similarly intractable position as it lobs bombs in a regional tender box, setting off a series of consequences that it will find increasingly difficult to control. Washington is now bombing Yemen, despite the acknowledging doing so has little deterrent effect. After the U.S. and the U.K. launched airstrikes across the country last week following an alleged missile and drone attack in the direction of an American cargo ship and Navy vessels surrounding it days earlier. The Biden administration claims that the U.S. is not interested in a war with Yemen, as White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said last Friday. The New York Times asked that same day, the regional war no one wanted is here. How wide will it get is the question. And you can read these articles in their entirety by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, in the Horn of Africa, millions of people uh, on yesterday celebrated Temket, the annual Ethiopian Epiphany Festival across Ethiopia, with government officials and religious leaders urging the faithful to maintain peace and the world's intangible cultural heritage. Yesterday, Temket festivities at John Meda, a sports ground in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, started early in the morning with a sunrise ritual. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims joined those believers who spent the night earlier attending long prayers and hymn services. The hymn services were followed by sprinkling of the holy water by the Abuni Matthias, patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahidu Church, and other priests until the faithful from a big artificial pool symbolizing the River Jordan, where Jesus Christ was believed uh, to have been baptized. In his message to the faithful, Matthias called on followers of the church to stand for the peace and the country and sustain the longstanding culture of supporting the needy. He stressed that the long-cherished Ethiopian culture of sharing uh, with the disfavored needs to be eternalized and practiced in people's day-to-day lives. Addressing the celebrants, 
Ruth Zetanyahu, a representative of the Addis Ababa City Administration, urged the faithful to maintain peace and teach the coming generation about such centuries-old culture and religious practices. She called on them to use the festival as a means to attract more tourists instead of misusing it for political purposes. And finally, uh, Sudan's uh, foreign ministry announced yesterday the country has frozen its membership uh, in the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGOD, an East African bloc. Chairman of the Transitional Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah al-Bahan, informed the president of the current session of EGOD of Sudan's decision to freeze its membership in the bloc. The ministry said in a statement, according to the statement, Sudan's move came as a result of the EGOD's disregard of Sudan's decision, which was officially conveyed to it to freeze dealing with the bloc on any issues related to Sudan, which did not happen at the EGOD's extraordinary summit held in Uganda uh, just this last past Thursday. On January 18, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development held a summit in the Ugandan capital of Kampala, where Sudan's crisis was part of the summit's agenda. Sudan boycotted the summit. The Sudanese foreign ministry further said that the final communique of the EGOD summit contained statements violating Sudan's sovereignty, pointing out that the Sudanese government does not abide by and is not concerned with every, everything issued by EGOD regarding the Sudanese affairs. And uh, we're going to end it there. And if you'd like to have uh, access uh, to all of these articles, uh, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency uh, was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week.
the voice of uh, Tina Turner from the track entitled Acid Queen. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 21st, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The siege upon Gaza is a very costly and deadly uh, action on the part of the State of Israel, and it is backed up uh, by the United States along with other imperialist countries. Let's listen to a report on the cost of the Gaza siege. I'm Adrian Finnegan, and this is Counting the Cost on Al Jazeera, your weekly look at the world of business and economics. This week, more than 100 days since the war on Gaza started, the humanitarian catastrophe is deepening. The life is being choked out of the Palestinian economy. Also this week, Israel's bombing of the Strip is seriously damaging the nation's economy. Businesses and consumers are feeling the pinch. Plus... Labeled as a troublemaker by China, will Taiwan's new president face pressure from Beijing? And can he bring prosperity back to the island? Thousands of people killed or injured, unprecedented destruction, a lack of food, water, medicine and fuel, and the basic foundations of a functioning economy wiped out. The humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza is worsening by the day and the strip is on the verge of famine. But more than 100 days since Israel launched its war, aid deliveries to Gaza are still limited. And the occupied West Bank is bearing the brunt of Israeli curbs on the movement of workers and goods. Al Jazeera's Nida Ibrahim begins our program from Ramallah. Palestinians in Gaza are struggling to survive. Most of the population has been forced to flee their homes. They have nothing. And basic necessities have become so scarce that prices are beyond the reach of most. My son's trousers are torn and I can't afford to buy him new ones. They cost 50 or 60 shekels, which I can't afford. As for food, a bag of flour costs 200 shekels, which I can't buy. Israel's war on Gaza has plunged the strip into a deep recession. The World Bank says that by mid-November, around two-thirds of the population was out of work. Most economic activity has grown to a halt. Hospitals, communications and roads, more than half has been destroyed. More than 70% of commercial infrastructure lies in ruins. Rebuilding is expected to cost tens of billions of dollars. It's unclear who will foot the bill, but the Palestinian presidency has some suggestions. Those who ruined Gaza, they have to, to be forced to rebuild Gaza. So the Americans are responsible. We hold America as the main responsible to find the right donors to rebuild Gaza. While the war has devastated Gaza's economy, the occupied West Bank is also struggling. Israel is withholding tax revenues that are owed to the Palestinian Authority, and it's preventing Palestinian workers from crossing over into Israel. Farms like this rely on the Israeli market. Restrictions imposed since the war began are hurting business. 
We produce most of the West Bank's products. Peppers, courgettes, aubergine, everything comes from this region. When the crossings to Israel are closed, all of these goods go to the local markets, which causes the prices to drop. On some days, we don't sell anything. The Palestinian Authority is the biggest employer in the occupied West Bank, but with no tax revenues coming in, it had to cut salaries, inflicting more damage on the economy. Israel's confiscation of Palestinian tax for more than three months constitutes almost 30% of the market movement. We had more than 200,000 people working in Israel, but after the war started, they were denied entry. All of those are important factors in the decline of the Palestinian economy. As the war on Gaza drags on, the future looks bleaker for Palestine. An end to the war will only mark the beginning of the battle to rebuild. Nida Ibrahim, Al Jazeera, for counting the cost. The financial cost of the war on Gaza, while clearly devastating, has yet to be calculated. But on the Israeli side, the cost of waging war has risen to almost $60 billion. Government spending is soaring in order to pay for bombs and bullets, and businesses are struggling as hundreds of thousands of workers have been called away to become soldiers. But revenues are dropping and Israelis are hunkering down. Now, if the war expands to the wider region, the expense could mount even further. As Stephanie Decker reports from West Jerusalem. War isn't only devastating, it's also expensive. The war in Gaza has shaken up the Israeli government's finances, requiring revised budgets and billions more dollars. Israel's prime minister has said from day one that this will be a long fight, and it's costing. At this moment, what is required, first of all, to cover the expenses of the war and to allow us to conduct the war in the coming year and complete it, including eliminating Hamas, returning our hostages, and restoring security in the north and the south so that residents can return. Spending cuts have been made to various ministries to allocate more money to the military. The war is also having an effect on various key industries here. Tech accounts for more than half of all the nation's exports, making it the largest engine of the economy, and that's taken a hit. Many army reservists work in the tech sector. 350,000 have been called up, and that's the largest number in Israel's history. Around 120,000 people have been displaced from their homes, both along the border with Gaza and in the north along the border with Lebanon. The government needs to pay for their housing. It's estimated 20% of Israeli workers are out of economic activity. Tourism is flatlined. It's only a tiny slice of the economy, but many jobs and businesses rely on the sector. Construction practically ground to a halt after the war when work permits of tens of thousands of Palestinians from the occupied West Bank were suspended. We are in a serious economic crisis. We are going to have a huge hole in expanding debt of the country. We risk Israel losing its very good credit rating with the credit agencies. That is an enormous blow to the Israeli economy. The Bank of Israel estimates that this war is going to cost the country around $58 billion. Its economy shrank 2% in the last three months of 2023, and it's costing $269 million a day for Israel to run this war, and that's without taking into consideration a possible escalation of a full-scale war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Stephanie Decker, Al Jazeera, West Jerusalem, for counting the cost. Let's speak now to Raja Khalidi in Ramallah. He's the Director General of the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute. 
And from Tel Aviv, we're joined by Roby Nathanson, who is the General Director of MACRO, the Center for Political Economics. Welcome, gentlemen, to you both. Roger, let's start with you. How would you describe life right now in Gaza? Well, life is, is hardly a word that we can uh, use to describe the sort of daily uh, uh, existence that Gazi, uh, people in Gaza are facing. Uh, the economy, if we can talk still about an economy, is at a subsistence level. Um, life is about finding food, medicine, and escaping uh, uh, bombing. Uh, so I don't, you know, it's, it, life is, I mean, here we want to talk about the economy, let's say, and the economy is, is, is pretty much reduced to zero. Has already, you know, is reduced to say 15% of its of its of its uh, usual activity, and that's mainly in the services area, that are that are uh, public services that are still being provided, and some salaries perhaps. But basically, the economy, the private economy, has ground to a halt, and we've turned to a different mode of production and consumption and uh, economic activity for the moment. Is there any estimation so far of the, of, of the costs in terms of lost economic output, unemployment, uh, trade, infrastructure, health, the education sectors, and so on? Let's just briefly separate the, the, the production losses from the uh, infrastructural losses. And in terms of the, the size of the Gaza economy, it was less than $3 billion a year. So it's already lost a quarter of that from the last quarter of, uh, of 23. And one can assume uh, uh, more or less that this is an economy that will not produce uh, value added in any a significant way for the rest of this year at the best in the best of scenarios. So we're already talking there about three to four billion dollars in lost output. Uh, this is not including the West Bank, which of course has been also reduced to a major to, to, to by significantly. In terms of reconstruction, I mean, even if we can assume that the relief that's estimated around a half a billion dollars a month can be provided over the next six to nine, twelve months, perhaps the reconstruction uh, of the infrastructure. The housing, the the, the the public service infrastructure and utilities is, you know, we're talking at least of uh, first estimates for housing stock is 15 billion. So I would, you know, we're talking uh, so far, we're looking so far at numbers that are uh, going to go above 20 billion dollars over a few years in terms of reconstruction and economic loss of a, ma a major blow to economic production. Robbie. Uh, Israel's war is costing what some 270 million dollars a day, uh, and it's and it's far from over. It would seem. Can Israel continue to keep fighting its war on Gaza? Well, uh, in the first point, uh, in the first place, I want to say that the Israeli economy is a strong economy, and the. It knows uh, to face uh, also crisis situation, and like it was the case also with the corona. Also in this situation, we have to consider that, uh, for example, the debt service uh, in Israel is 60% of the GDP, which is uh, among the best uh, around the world. Even uh, before the war, according to uh, index of the economies, Israel is the fourth uh, best uh, economy uh, uh, in the world in terms of uh, performance, of macroeconomic performance. It had uh, surplus and the bonus of, uh, of payment, uh, a surplus also in the uh, tax income and the frame of the budget. So to say, when we also are facing the cost of this war, I think uh, that uh, for the time being, Israel can, uh, uh, can afford to finance the cost of the war. Uh, in the medium and in the short, also in the medium term, the question is, of course, what will happen in the next and uh, uh, the, the longer term. 
But on the other side, we have also to consider other components uh, which are connected to the cause of the war. Uh, first, uh, of course, there are sectors that are directly affected, uh, like uh, tourism, like construction, like uh, agriculture, uh, and specific regions of the country that have been paralyzed, like the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel. But generally speaking, the economy is uh, functioning. Mm. Uh, the industry is functioning. The high-tech sector is functioning. Uh, the services and uh, also communication and financial services are okay. functioning. The economy is showing some uh, resilience, as you say, but yeah. with the budget deficit expected to reach 7%, the nation's borrowing costs rising, its credit ratings at, at, at risk. Uh, can the economy keep holding up? I mean, what are we, what are we talking about? You, you mentioned the medium to, to long term. How long can Israel keep this up? Well, of course, it cannot uh, keep uh, the situation up uh, indefinitely, but uh, in terms of the uh, planning uh, of the strategy of the government, uh, in the medium term, I think uh, that Israel can hold, uh, hold the situation also from the economic point of view. Recently, a budget has been uh, passed, uh, which uh, is also quite uh, uh, considering uh, significant cuts in the budget in order to cop, cut uh, uh, to cope with the with the deficit uh, in the in the short term uh, interest rates uh, are uh, going down uh, so to say and this is something that uh, can also encourage economic activity in the short term uh, and uh, as i said uh, israel can comfortably increase its uh, debt service from 60% to 70% yeah. without damaging its uh, international uh, credibility okay. uh, and uh, perhaps pass uh, this burden not uh, for this generation but uh, for the next generation and, and the framework of the okay. of the uh, higher debt all right roger um We've been talking about Gaza so far in this, in this discussion. What's been the impact of all of this on the economy of the occupied West Bank? Actually, what we just heard about the Israeli economy is, in fact, very uh, it provides a good backdrop. We were talking about an economy which is like 150 times the size of the Gaza economy, uh, so the Israeli economy, and of course, as, as was explained, has a whole range of policy instruments. So, the, on the other hand, the occupied West Bank in particular, but the Palestinian economy in general, is a fragile, open economy. Uh, it's, it feels the shocks immediately. It has no shock absorbers, uh, be it you know in terms of institutional policy measures or, or resources. So uh, from the first day of the war, uh, not only as we watch Gaza uh, be pounded into the dust and its economy rendered effectively uh, moot, uh, the West Bank uh, began to feel the various waves of Israeli policy measures. The first, of course, was the restriction of workers, uh, uh, well, the sus suspension or cessation of Palestinian workers being allowed to access Israeli markets. So that's already 150, 180,000 workers, 20-something percent of the West Bank uh, labor force, bringing in uh, 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 approximately $300 million a month, uh, close to $4 billion, $3.5 to $4 billion a year, which is almost 20% uh, 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 of the GNI or 15% or of national income. So that was the first uh, shock, and it continues not only to reverberate, but to deepen in terms of people have not yet been allowed to return, and, and we are assuming that we won't be going back to work in Israel in any major way. 
and, and on the other hand, now you have a, a, a related but a similarly uh, impressive crisis in, in the form of, as was mentioned in your report, the cutoff of, of clearance revenues. So uh, due to the PA uh, for these last three months, I believe it was close to over 100, over $400 million in trade taxes that Israel usually transfers to the PA, but in the circumstances of the war, it was adding to its usual deductions, new unilateral deductions, supposedly to, to, to okay. prevent money reaching Gaza. Anyhow, so the point is that that's another one, uh, okay. three and a half, $400 million, which we should have had pumped into the market. So there is a collapse yeah. that has begun and will will accelerate as we go Gentlemen, forward. Gentlemen, I'm afraid we must uh, we just leave it. We're out of time. Roger Khalidi and uh, Robbie Nathanson. Many thanks indeed for being with us. Taiwan is a global semiconductor hub. Nations with an interest in the advanced chips have kept a close eye on the island's presidential election, so much so in China, which claims Taiwan as its own territory to be taken by force if necessary, a position that Taipei rejects. Taiwan's new president is in favor of independence, and his victory is being seen as a thorn in Beijing's side. But managing relations with China isn't the only challenge facing the new president. He's pledged to fix economic problems such as inequality and unemployment. Al Jazeera's Tony Cheng reports from Taipei. Speaking to voters ahead of the elections here in Taiwan, there were two big issues at the forefront of everyone's mind. The first was China. Angry rhetoric coming out of Beijing and increased in tensions over the Taiwan Straits in recent years and comments from Chinese President Xi Jinping the return of Taiwan to China was inevitable. But people were also really concerned about the domestic economy, rising inflation, the lack of opportunities for young people. Well, the election is now resolved, but the winner was the man that Beijing certainly doesn't want to see in power. So what's that going to mean for the economy? China is dealing with some unprecedented you know, economic situations, but they will try their best to keep everything under control. Yeah, so you know that they acknowledge the existence of the problems and they will try to figure out some solutions for that. But Taiwan has had an ace up its sleeve. The island produces about 60% of the world's semiconductors, vital computer chips essential for manufacturers around the world. I think semiconductor is, is one factor contributing to you know, the mutual willingness to uh, cooperate, but this is not enough. If we only rely on semiconductor, I think Taiwan is doomed. President-elect Lai Ching-de went so far as to mention specifically the semiconductor industry in his victory speech, saying that Taiwan must invest more. But more generally, people here are very aware that they've been right at the center of global attention for the last couple of weeks, and now the election is resolved. I think they're hoping that the focus will move elsewhere and they can get back to business. Tony Cheng, Al Jazeera, for counting the costs in Taipei. Well, Taiwan and China have complicated political relations, but they're economically intertwined. Beijing has long been Taipei's largest trading partner, but Taiwanese investments into China plunged to their lowest level in more than two decades last year. As you can see here, they've dropped by almost 40% year on year to more than $3 billion. Investments in China peaked at almost $14 billion in 2010. Taiwanese companies are now boosting investment in the U.S., Europe, Japan and other countries.
Joining us now from Hong Kong is Gary Ng, who is a senior economist at Natixix, a research fellow also at the Central European Institute of Asian Studies. Uh, good to have you with us, uh, Gary. Uh, economic issues like unemployment, inequality and housing affordability, affordability were, as we heard, major concerns to voters in this election. Do you think the new president can deliver on all of those? Well, indeed, uh, if you look at the uh, situation in Taiwan right now, actually the economic growth will probably rebound slightly in the next uh, two to three years because of the global cyclical rebound. But the biggest issue here is not about how much the economy grew. It's because of um, uh, basically how whether residents can actually feel this uh, growth because um, we have heard uh, structural problems from inequality, um, housing problems like uh, very fast home uh, prices growth, etc. I mean, all of these problems are basically something that has been rather long term and voters are actually uh, finding solutions out of the uh, latest administration. So this is indeed a very big challenge that Lai will need to face. But at the same time, we cannot forget that actually uh, the DPP will not have the majority in the legislative union anymore. So this will probably uh, make his life even harder. Yeah, I was going to ask you about how difficult it is going to be for the new president to get anything done, really. We will see more political drama in Taiwan Legislative uh, uh, Council, so which basically means that we do expect that in some of the general policy, like uh, 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 basically on the support to semiconductor, um, there will not be too much resistance. However, for some of the other areas with more disagreement, like energy or social issues, it's quite hard to get things uh, move forward. So therefore, it's quite likely that this sort of political denial in Taiwan will result in a, okay. a slower potential growth. Gary, you talked about, about social issues. I, I read that, that many commentators argue that with uh, an aging population and a downturn in industrial production anyway, Taiwan should be completely reinventing its economic model. Do you, do you agree? If you first look at the economic uh, structure of Taiwan, uh, if you look at the past, uh, let's say, two to three decades, it's mainly a very semiconductor different um, industry. So it's quite hard to see how Taiwan can deviate uh, from that uh, in a very uh, short time, because even if we look at some of the new sectors like artificial intelligence, electric vehicles and batteries, some of the things that Taiwan can actually do better in the future, they're all electronics related. So therefore, to that end, it's something that Taiwan should keep. But on the other hand, uh, whether uh, Taiwan should find ways to diversify in developing uh, like um, its financial industry, pension, or, or like a tourism industry in a greater way, I totally agree because um, if you put too many eggs in uh, one basket, uh, usually when you have a very huge uh, headwinds coming, then uh, there will be uh, a cost to pay. So um, definitely, I think Taiwan should find a way to diversify. You, you talk, Gary, about, about Taiwan's uh, superiority, if you like, in, the, in, in ele electronics manufacturing. But China is ramping up its semiconductor industry, and semiconductors form a pillar of, of the Taiwanese economy. And how much pressure is that going to put on Taiwan? Well, indeed, uh, if we look at how fast China is moving right now, I would say this is probably a greater threat than any, uh, you know, uh, trade tensions that Taiwan may uh, see from uh, any uh, tariff reduction from China, because this is really something that is structurally changing uh, the in the, the relative uh, comparative advantage between China and Taiwan, which will eventually give uh, Beijing an even bigger bargaining uh, chip in terms of uh, um, managing this cross-strait 
relationship. So for Taiwan, um, the biggest challenge is that China has been using uh, uh, basically state-owned money subsidies into um, chip manufacturing, which already see uh, quite a bit of uh, breakthrough, even though uh, it's still not comparable to the West or Taiwan, etc. But this is something that is probably coming, and I wouldn't be surprised that in the future um, uh, there will be an oversupply in the low-end chips, which will hurt some of the Taiwanese firms. And for the high-end, it really depends on how this competition goes. And, and as for the political situation, Gary, Beijing has made it quite clear that, that this candidate was not the one that it wanted to see uh, win this election. How do you think that is going to affect relations, ongoing relations, which are already tense between Taipei and, and Beijing? And where does the U.S. come into this? Well, there could be many uncertainty, but one thing we're certain is that there will not be any constructive dialogue between the DPP and the uh, Chinese Communist Party in Beijing simply because um, this is not the preferred candidate that they want. And of course, uh, if you look at the statement that it issued, whether towards Taiwan or towards other government, indeed, it's probably slightly uh, like not as intense as many people may have expected, which still shows that I think the status quo seems to be the most uh, likely scenario that we see here. And for the U.S., um, with all these meetings with China right before the Taiwan election, etc., I do also share the same view that no one really wants a war in the Taiwan trade right now. So, of course, this competition will continue, the, the risking trend will continue, but probably there will also be a downside a limit towards how far uh, the two countries will go uh, in terms of this geopolitical uh, contest and whether this will uh, lead to ultimate uh, military conflict. Really good to talk to you, Gary. Many thanks indeed for being with us on Counting the Cost. And that's our show for this week. If you want to comment on anything that you've seen, you can get in touch with us via X. I'm at A. Finnegan on X. Please try to remember to use the hashtag AJCTC when you do, or you could drop us a line. Counting the Cost at aljazeera.net is our email address. As always, there's plenty more for you online at aljazeera.com forward slash CTC. That takes you straight to our page, and there you'll find uh, individual reports, links, even entire episodes for you to catch up on. But that is it for this edition of Counting the Cost. I'm Adrian Finnegan. From the whole team here in Doha, thanks for being with us. The news on Al Jazeera is next. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report uh, on the recent elections uh, in Taiwan and its impact on relations with the People's Republic of China. And before that, uh, the economic costs of the Israeli uh, siege upon Gaza. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. I want a Sunday kind of love. A love to last. And I'd like to know It's more than love at first sight And I want a Sunday kind of love Oh yeah I want a, a, a love that's on the square Someone to care And I'm on a lonely road To leave 
Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, this Sunday, uh, January 21st, uh, 2024, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, right now, we'd like to move into a report. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo just underwent another election in which uh, the incumbent president, Felix Chesekete, uh, was reelected despite uh, questions uh, raised uh, about uh, accessibility. Uh, of uh, the ballot uh, to people in areas of the country uh, which are under tremendous uh, destabilization. Let's listen to an interview uh, with the Vice President of the Democratic Republic of Congo on the situation in that Central African state. Welcome back. Let's continue now with other news. In fact, let's take you to the DRC now. We're on politics editor standing by with the DRC Vice Prime Minister Jean-Pierre Bemba. Of course, yesterday we witnessed the um, president-elect, Felix Shitsukedi, um, being sworn in for a second term. And we were just looking at the reception thereof, um, following some of the red flags and questions that had been raised about the election irregularities. So as we await Mzwai to um, bring us the latest on that front with that conversation, we're also speaking about the role of South Africa and the DRC and what that also means of the agency of the continent, just giving, given rather the um, geopolitical landscape that is shifting. We were also looking at some of the other dynamics set to come to the fore. But for now, Mzwai is standing by. Let me hand it over to him. With me uh, is the Vice Prime Minister of the DRC, 
uh, Jean-Pierre Pemba, who is no stranger to the politics of the DRC. He's been around. Uh, we know him even during the transitional time where he was the uh, vice president. And, in, and of course, uh, I've had the opportunity to speak to him about those issues. But what we're going to do today, we're going to find out in terms of the vision of the country as they've been given this uh, new mandate. Uh, welcome, uh, Mr. Vice Prime Minister. It's good to have you. I remember that uh, I once had this interview similar back in 2005 uh, in Kinshasa. And then, of course, there you were very hopeful because you were at the transitional state, so you were looking forward to a better uh, Congo. Yeah. Uh, when you go back from 2005 to, to, to today, is that the kind of Congo you were hoping for? Thank you for being here. <clears throat> First of all, of course, when you compare from uh, 2005 uh, up to today, things have uh, changed the last, I would say, five years. Because uh, during 18 years of uh, the former regime, uh, things have gone down. I just, uh, just wanted to give one uh, example. Uh, I left uh, the country in uh, 2007. We succeeded in 2005 to triple the budget of the state, from to, to double, I would say, to double and half. Because we came when I came in 2003, the budget was three billion, and when I left, it was something like uh, seven billion. But when I came back in 2018, 2019, we still had the same budget, five billion. Today, the last five years, with President Tshisekedi on his first mandate, the budget raised from the five billion to sixteen billion. That is the difference during the last five years, and I'm very happy about that. Right? So clearly, the yeah billion in dollars. In dollars, oh yes, which is quite significant. And then clearly, uh, saying something perhaps about your own role as well. Uh, because obviously there was a time um, when you obviously went to Europe and then you got arrested for about 10 years yeah. and then that time that you are mentioning so clearly uh, nothing happened from that. Given that um, we do see that there's some improvement um, in the past five years but there are still a lot of challenges in this country, um, uh, Vice Prime Minister. So what is it that you have decided uh, together with the uh, the team, uh, including the president, uh, you will do better to alleviate the problems of the people of this country? Yeah, um, of course there are a lot to do. And I will take uh, the, the program and the speech of the President Tshisekedi yesterday yeah. during the Sorry ceremony. He gave uh, like uh, six uh, directions that uh, he wanted to implement uh, during his uh, second mandate. Uh, Whatever direction uh, among the six direction is to to increase the in employment, mm. to give more employment for the people in Congo and particularly the young people, mm. by diversifying the economy, by giving them access to developing local projects. Yeah. That is one of the really main things. Second, he wanted to stabilize and to improve the purchasing power by stabilizing mm. the inflation and stabilize and uh, Stabilizing and so the exchange rate yep. between, of course, uh, the dollar and uh, the Congolese strike. Um, the, the third, also, and because we have started already that program, is to secure all the Congolese people, all the territory, to assure the territory integrity, 
also in, for the whole people, because without security you cannot uh, develop I mean, a country. Uh, fourth uh, is uh, to also uh, open and uh, to diversify the economy, as I say, mm-hmm. by putting and focusing on the transformation of the raw material mm. in mine and I saw to allow the people to transform all this mineral inside Congo mm. instead of keeping in exporting in a row. I saw in the, uh, the agriculture, agriculture uh, so transforming more than yeah. exporting like the coffee can transform here, the tea can transform here, uh, the maize can transform here, so, and so rice also to improve the production of rice, and all other agriculture to be, to, uh, to read the, 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 the sufficient yeah. um, capacity to feed our people. And I saw another important thing that the president started in the first mandate is uh, on the program of the development of the 145 territories, where We've already achieved a lot because I made a campaign uh, for the president and I, I traveled to most all, I mean 38 localities in the country with yeah. the campaign. And I can see in the, this program, special program of improving the infrastructure, yeah. road, the uh, rebuilding of uh, the, the reinforcing the administration, local yeah. administration, by giving them new building. Yeah for the as new assembly, for the chief of the territory, improving the, the power, giving capacity for electricity for the people, also water for the people. And I think this is uh, the more directional access that the president talked yesterday. I mean, I think those points were quite um, prominent in the speech of the president, as you, you have said. But then there's this issue. Um, I mean, everyone keeps saying that DRC has everything the internal capacity of doing exactly, uh, of processing some of those minerals here, of doing exactly what you are promising uh, Congolese people. So how are you going to do that? Have you built enough capacity to do that? Yes, I think the capacity will come from uh, the confidence uh, that uh, the investor will have in Congo. Congo has a lot of to do, as you say. We need to, uh, to develop, uh, the state needs to develop, in fact, even to the people, the infrastructure of roads, airports, highway, electricity, and uh, water. But also, we have a code of investment, and we have uh, in the governance an opportunity to lead, to give to everybody, investor, to come and invest in coal. Because uh, the government will not be able, the budget will not be able to develop, example, all the sector of the electricity. But with a partnership, because we are a liberate economy, we can bring people to come here and invest in dam to develop electricity, to develop water, roads. So that is the philosophy of this liberal economy. Yeah. But for that one, of course, we need to inform and to leave all the investors, internal investors, <laughs> external investors to come in Congo and say, me, I want to invest in this sector and give them all facilities. How key is a country like South Africa, for example, uh, which has been very central in stabilizing Congo in terms of investment? We know its role in terms of um, what is happening in the East. Yeah. And then, of course, even organizing uh, some of the, of democratizing this country. Yes. But when it comes to investment, 
I think you do see one or two uh, companies, but you, you, you really don't see them, which I think they can help in terms of the know-how, in terms of what you want to do as no, your vision. exactly what we're expecting from uh, South Africa, uh, expecting from the company, the enterprise in South Africa, to come in Congo and invest. They have a lot of to do, not just in terms of with the mine, but in the agriculture also you have a lot of uh, to do, in the terms of this uh, production of power, electricity. Mm. So I think that then I will welcome and I say that uh, to the, uh, the businessman and the, uh, the company, Enterprise to come uh, and come and, and see what they can do. Of course, they are welcome. And what uh, South Africa is doing in terms of uh, stabilizing, I mean, the security, yeah. is very important. Very important. This cooperation, military cooperation <laughs> through SADEC, yeah. of course, is very important. Yeah. And then talking about that, they, some business people from South Africa sometimes complain about the red tapes, about the difficulty of doing business in Congo. So, how are you going to ensure that? Um, those obstacles are removed, particularly for a country, um, not only South Africa, but in this instance, I'm mentioning South Africa because of its direct role in terms of uh, trying to stabilize and democratize this country. The challenge that uh, the new government, uh, that the president's certificate will put in place, uh, has to do is really to facilitate and remove all these, uh, how do you say, uh, obstacles. Obstacles, yes for the people to come. We know that there are obstacles in the system, in the administration also. But uh, that is, uh, I think, the, the, the target and the challenge that uh, this new government has to put in place to allow uh, people from South Africa or in uh, other countries to come, business, but to come facilitate and invest in, invest in, uh, investing in, uh, in our country. <coughs> what has been the hold-up, um, Vice Prime Minister? I remember um, when I spoke to you back in 2005 as a transitional um, uh, vice president then, I think you were as hopeful as you are today. But, uh, I mean, so many years later, we're still speaking the same language. What has been the hold-up in terms of really uh, ramping up the infrastructure development? I think it requests uh, a lot of uh, uh, investment. Building a kilometer of road here, it depends between $600,000 to $1 million. The country is huge. 2,345,000 square kilometers. Linking north, south, east, west requests a lot of, uh, a lot of money. And I'm sure that uh, the day we'll uh, find that solution, which is getting resources, financial resources, to build 30,000 kilometers of roads. That is for me the beginning of the development of the country. Putting electricity mm. in the whole city to allow people now to develop their own project mm. inside the city. I'm sure that that is for me the beginning of the development of the country. Of course, the fighting against corruption so is uh, very important. Improvement of the governance mm. is part also of giving the confidence to the investor to come in Congo. All together must be able to putting in place must be able to to get down. But but do, do you have um, the people who are uh, qualified to do exactly that? Um, I mean, if you want to improve governance, uh, it's not just by word, uh, Vice Prime Minister. It's by deed. So do you have the sufficient 
personnel that is qualified to do that. No, I'm sure that Congo has a lot of, a lot of, of cadres who are all over the world. Even in South Africa, you have a doctor there, you have a teacher there, all over the world in America, in Canada, in Europe. So it would be easy for President Tshisekedi to choose among all those people, uh, the right people to, to be able to put in place his, uh, his policy, his uh, vision for Congo. How much of... Sorry? Even in Congo. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, no, certainly. How much of um, a difficulty has the conflict, particularly in the East, um, stabilized, destabilized uh, the development in this country? Yeah. The, the problem we're having is not the first time. It's the fourth time now that Rwanda is attacking attack Congo. Because, uh, as you know, they take advantage on the mineral of Congo. You don't have a, a coltan or gold in, uh, in Rwanda. But if you see the statistic of export of those two examples, of these two materials, you will see that Rwanda exports gold and exports coltan. From where? So you understand now why this war is? But I tell you, we're not doing one fighting, of course, uh, to, defend, uh, to defend our territory, because we're not going to to give one single square centimeter to anybody, mm. even a millimeter. Is that the reason why uh, part of the key points of the president, I think six or f five or six points, yeah. one of them was restructuring the security to defend the territory. Absolutely. So is it informed by the events particularly led by, as you have said, Rwanda? It is uh, because of Rwanda, but we are surrounded by nine countries. Yeah. Congo is surrounded by nine countries. So we have to defend all our borders to enable the people to live in peace. Enable also the investor to come and invest in peace and give also employment. All is linked. Rwanda is your neighbor and um, there is a very long relationship uh, between these two countries. So what has been the difficulty in engaging the leadership there politically? Um, have you as the leaders of Congo gone to Rwanda to say stop what you are doing and what has been their response? You know, on the first one, as being the first mandate of uh, President Tshisekedi, he met with President Kagame mm. and they, they, they get a very good relationship. Mm. He allowed Rwanda, the Highland Company, mm. to land in the Congo, to travel in Congo, to be even a position in Rwanda. There was an investment uh, made by Rwanda in the uh, Don't understand. Uh, second time, uh, the leadership of Rwanda has uh, betrayed uh, President Tshisekedi, uh, and now start now to support uh, the, the so-called uh, group of anti which is in fact not that today. It is the uh, Rwanda soldiers that we are fighting today. The Rwanda front is the front line. It's the Rwanda soldiers. I think we have no problem between the two mm. populations. Because we live together, and we speak the same language, uh, some parts of the country. But the leadership of Rwanda is causing really problems, not just with uh, DRC. Today it's with uh, Burundi. Yesterday it was with uh, Uganda. Mm. So I don't know. So the question should be to ask uh, the leadership of Rwanda, what's going on with you against the leadership of your neighbor? That is a mis we met, uh, and I was one of the persons uh, representing uh, uh, the country, uh, mandated by the president, on 
all this uh, meeting in uh, Gaborod, in Luanda, in uh, Dar es Salaam, in Arusha, yeah. in uh, Bujumbura, we are there with uh, the, the one this delegation. We're asking them the question: Why do you attack us? But you don't have any answer. You're just uh, looking for excuse. What do they say to they, that they question? Start, at the beginning, they start to say, "We are not there." Mm-hmm. But today they admit that they are there because the picture are there. The last yeah. meeting in Arusha, I show all the picture. Yeah. Nobody contests. Yeah. So in the engagements between the two presidents, um, wh- what does uh, President Kakame say when you raise these issues? Um, I mean, when President Chesekedi raises these issues, what does he say? What is his actual response? No, frankly, when uh, the President Chesekedi raised this issue, of course, there are no genuine and serious answers. Why they are there? What are you doing in our territory? If it is a Congolese matter, let us solve this Congolese matter among Congolese. Why do you send your soldiers in our territory? No answer. So, what are you going to do now? Defend our people, secure our people, and defend. Uh, our territory and its integrity. I, I think the, the, the SADC mission that is um, already uh, being deployed, um, part of what you have planned, I think, together with other countries uh, like Tanzania, Malawi, is that you want to solve the Eastern problem within 12 months. Is it feasible, uh, given what is happening and given what you yourselves, and then of course, as Vice Prime Minister, you also carry the title of Defence Minister, so you are very qualified to speak about the issues. So is that part of restructuring to be able to deal with that? Yeah, of course. So restructuring is a program that has started from the beginning of the mandate of the first mandate of the president. Increasing the power of our army, the equipment of the army, and the training of the army. That's it, uh, things that we are doing in meantime. Not because of the war, but because it was really because of one of yeah. the programs of the president in the first mandate that we are going to go on and continue. But uh, now with the SADC, uh, what we say that we have uh, uh, to disarm all this armed group and uh, to defeat, defeat this uh, mm. armed group and defeat the Rwanda army in our territory. Mm. That is the main uh, uh, target that we are getting uh, we have uh, with the SADC uh, uh, through the summit DRC. So if you engage other regional leaders, and uh, not only Rwanda, leaders like uh, President Ramaphosa, uh, President of Angola, uh, president of Tanzania and leaders really in the region. So what do they say when you raise this issue and perhaps pre- present evidence to them? No, I think that uh, they understood. If they are there, because they understood that we are attacked by your Rwandese. After all the diplomacy has been done, Rwanda still uh, uh, don't understand and wants to remain in our territory. And I think that uh, we are part of something. Yes. We are part of something. And we have, uh, as you know, a statute. And so if one of the countries is destabilized by solidarity, the other country must help to establish the stability, the peace, and the security. I I think what I want to understand, yes, is a big, and of course, Eastern African community as well. Mm. For developing the economy, the exchange among all these countries, but Mm. how can you develop exchange, economy, Mm. uh, trading, when you are attacked? So I think what I want to also understand is um, um, do you feel uh, let down or 
by perhaps in inverted commas, I would say non-action. Uh, uh, I am aware of the military, the SADC military intervention. So that is the military part of it. But I think what can eventually um, conclude this is political engagement. So your colleagues from the region, uh, the presidents that are leading these countries, do you feel perhaps as the DRC let down that they may not uh, be doing enough in terms of political engagement with one of their colleagues who is next door, who you have reported to be a destabilizer? You know, we have two processes. The Nairobi process yeah. and the Luanda process. Meeting is quite, it's not every week, two times per month. Mm just to try to solve diplomatically this problem. If we had respect all decisions taken by Luanda process, we should have ended this war up to date. But there one group was hiding yes. between the M23. We should have been going on the process of Luanda to be disarmed and integrate through this process, PDRTS, which is the disarmament, reinsertion, social reinsertion. Yes. They were adding until the end. They have now to show themselves. And they are the one in the front line. But of course, the Rwandese army are not going to disarm in the Rwanda process. I think that's, that's, that's exactly why I wanted to know from your uh, colleagues in the region if the agreements like the Luanda process, the Nairobi process that you are speaking about, have been agreed upon, but somehow are flouted or not respected. So those people who are signatories to those agreements, what do they say? It's a violation. Just a violation of the process. And they refuse, in fact, to implement the process. And the only person or group is around this uh, leadership. So what has the UN said around this? You know that, of course, uh, there is part uh, of this engagement in the Congo uh, this year. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't see they are there for the last 23 years now. <laughs> they are there. But we still have the same situation that we are talking 23 years ago. So are you not worried now that um, given your grand vision, um, as we heard from the President, this has the potential of yet again uh, perhaps derailing the process. I mean, we saw the, the improvement, I think, um, uh, from, from around um, late 20, 2000s and to mid 2010s, but then we saw the going backwards. So given that these issues still remain, so are you not worried that your grand vision that you've put out there, which is for all to see, may be derailed? by the unsolving of these problems? No. Maybe that is a target of uh, those people who attack us. They don't want to see uh, a Congo be great and develop on that vision. Maybe that is a target to stop us. Okay. Maybe to, to conclude on this point, yeah. so are you going to be engaging Rwanda soon about this? Because clearly you are very honest about saying it's Rwanda that is derailing you. Are you going to be engaging them politically, not militarily? But politically, we were in uh, all this process. They are there. Process of, uh, of Luanda. In the EEC meeting. They are there. The leadership are there. Yes, maybe the one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, 
DRC and Rwanda directly speaking to each other. You know, when you are eat, when you eat with the devil, you need to have a uh, witness. <laughs> okay. Well, I get you. So maybe to uh, going towards closure, um, there are other areas that I would like to uh, touch upon, um, particularly uh, with this country being so endowed with mineral resources. You know, we are in terms of the motor industry, so we are moving towards um, the electric cars, and then you've got the minerals that can drive that from here. Yeah. So are you ready to seize the moment? Um, so are you not going to be exporting these minerals like cobalt to Europe or in the Americas and Asia? And so what are you going to do to ensure that everything is being processed here because currently there is no capacity? No, but, uh, as I said, it is one of the, uh, the program of the president to transform all the, the, the raw material, I mean, here in Congo, in the mineral, in terms of the mineral. Yeah. We cannot continue uh, exporting just like this. Mm. We have to make, be able to transform. Maybe take about the this question of the, the, the electrical car. Mm. But I can tell you that there are already uh, some agreement to produce uh, this battery mm. in the Congo. Mm. Yeah. And then in terms of the employment of the young people, so what is, uh, other than what you've just mentioned, in terms of also incentivizing them to be heavily involved in, in, in Congo, what are you also going to do? By developing uh, in a different sector of the economy and gave them through the financial uh, sector the opportunity for these young people to develop their own enterprise. And so by developing, I mean, and uh, improving investment by a clear and a strong policy of bringing, attracting people mm. to invest to get more employment for the young people. I think both of it uh, will help the, uh, and to increase the capacity of uh, the employment in Congo. Of course, SABC political editor Nzondi Lembeche is in conversation with um, DRC Vice Prime Minister Jean-Pierre Bemba. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview uh, by South African Broadcasting Corporation, SABC, uh, journalist uh, with Jean-Pierre Bemba, uh, who is the Minister of Defense and the Vice Prime Minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which just uh, inaugurated um, President Felix Tshisekedi uh, for a second term uh, just this weekend. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Keisha Campbell with the track entitled Be Alone Tonight. This is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. And right now we want to move into a segment uh, examining uh, the recent visit uh, by the Chinese foreign minister uh, to the African continent. Uh, Let's uh, listen in. For 34 years, it has been a tradition for China's top diplomat to kick off the country's foreign policy engagement with a visit to the African continent. This year, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, also a member of the Political Bureau of the Communist Party of China's Central Committee, visited Egypt, Tunisia, Togo and Cote d'Ivoire, emphasizing economic development and bilateral ties. The situation in Gaza also topped the agenda in talks with the Arab League officials anti-Egyptian leadership, reiterating China's commitment to addressing global and regional challenges responsibly. Furthermore, Wang Yi underscored the need for African countries to safeguard their sovereignty and find their own development path. This week on the program, we look at the highlights of Chinese Foreign Minister's tour, examining how these visits impact Africa and explore the evolving dynamics of China-Africa cooperation. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. We are delving into the significance of China's annual foreign policy tradition, the visit to Africa by its top diplomat. Before we bring in our panel, CGTN's Robert Nagila unpacks for us the key highlights. Let's take a listen. The foreign minister began his four-country Africa tour on Saturday with a visit to Egypt, where he met with President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. He also held talks with Egypt's foreign minister, where they agreed to push for elevating their bilateral relations to a new level. Their discussions also touched on the war in Gaza. We are working with Arab and Islamic countries to cease the fire and fighting. The Palestinian crisis has lasted for 76 years. This is a historic injustice that should not continue any longer. Egypt's foreign minister, Samir Shukri, affirmed his country's support for the One China principle and praised the development cooperation between the two countries. We value what China has achieved in development. It is a role model for developing countries for work and political will to progress and develop. We look forward to benefiting from the Chinese model. On Monday, the Chinese foreign minister traveled to Tunisia, where he held talks with President Kai Saied in the capital, Tunis. Wang Yi said China supports Tunisia in the safeguarding of its sovereign independence and national dignity. The Tunisian president, meanwhile, affirmed his country's support for the Belt and Road Initiative and committed to the One China Principle. Later, Wang Yi held talks with Tunisia's foreign minister, Nabil Lamar, where they agreed to strengthen high-level exchanges and expand all-round cooperation. From Tunisia, Wang Yi traveled to Togo on Wednesday, where he met President Foreigner Singbei and conveyed warm greetings from President Xi Jinping. He also met with Prime Minister Tomega Dogbe and Foreign Minister Robert Dessay. The two sides pledged to enhance strategic cooperation in their joint efforts towards modernization. Robert Nagila, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya.
Well, let's now bring in our panel of experts. Joining us from Cairo, Gamal Roshdi, spokesperson for the Arab League Secretary General. In Abidjan, Professor Juliam Libi, economist and managing director of Mentally and Partners uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. And in Beijing, joining via Zoom, Professor Ho Ping, research fellow, Institute of West Asian and African Studies. Uh, a very warm welcome to you all and thank you for joining in on this uh, discussion. I want to get your uh, view first of the foreign minister's uh, visit uh, to Africa. China's foreign minister Wang Yi has been on a tour of four African countries this week, Egypt, Tunisia, Togo and Côte d'Ivoire. Uh, first of all, uh, Gamal, let me start off with you. Can you first outline the key highlights of that tour? How would you characterize the main objective? I think it was a very important, uh, successful visit by the uh, Chinese foreign minister. He's an old uh, friend of the Arab League's uh, uh, Secretary General Ahmed Abul Ghid. They met, uh, they had a very um, successful meeting. Uh, of course, they, uh, they exchanged views on the, uh, the uh, current issue, the, the most important issues uh, uh, the, in, the, in, the, in the region, and also the, uh, the issues that are important to China. They uh, they shared like uh, they 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 they, um, they saw eye to eye uh, on Gaza and uh, the um, the meeting in the in, during the meeting it was important to listen to the Chinese positions on uh, on Gaza uh, because this is the most uh, uh, pressing issue now in the uh, in the Arab world and the Arab region. Um, uh, actually, we, we, it, was a, uh, it was an occasion for the Secretary General of the Arab League to uh, express, uh, express appreciation to the Chinese uh, positions, uh, positions on Gaza. Uh, China is an important world power and it has leverage. It's playing uh, an increasingly active role uh, in the Arab region. And it's, it was important to, to express uh, a shared uh, view uh, with the uh, Chinese foreign minister that this war, this Israeli campaign on Gaza has to stop now. Uh, it, it, it has caused a humanitarian ca catastrophe in Gaza. Um, the uh, the uh, assistance should be allowed in Gaza uh, with a sustainable mechanism mm -hmm. that would allow for the assistance to go into Gaza to ease the humanitarian situation people are living there. The two uh, leaders also uh, expressed uh, right. th their shared view that this uh, conflict in Gaza should be contained and should not be expanded into uh, the region as we are witnessing, uh, into other places in the region as we are witnessing now in the Red Sea and other uh, spots in the uh, Middle East. On his part, the, uh, the Arab League's uh, uh, Secretary General, he was keen to express on his part the, the, uh, the support for the One China uh, Principle uh, to express the actually the the, the Arab uh, position on uh, on the Taiwan issue, uh, of, uh, the Arab countries, all the Arab countries support the uh, One China principle. To sum up, the the the, 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 the meeting uh, was important for each side to express support for the other side's uh, uh, issues and uh, uh, and issues of concern. Professor Ho Ping, let me get your view on the key highlights you thought came out of the tour. Yes, I, I fully agree uh, with uh, the previous speaker's uh, his opinion because this time around, 
our China's 40-minute uh, visit uh, Africa, as uh, we have been doing in the past uh, 34 years. But uh, this year, one of the different issues is uh, now we are facing uh, this uh, hot-spot issue, uh, Palestine, Gaza, uh, you know, the Israel, this conflict, uh, this uh, uh, Gaza, this uh, humanitarian crisis there. So that is why uh, we, uh, we talked with the Egyptian, uh, you know, president and also Arab League, now joint visit, uh, you know, uh, issued uh, this uh, statement. Uh, either with Egypt or also with the uh, uh, Arab League. So we have been uh, reached uh, uh, very widely this, concern, uh, this uh, co common point. Uh, that is why uh, now I think uh, uh, this come out with the joint voice, not only uh, from China and also from Egypt, from Arab League as a whole. So this is very important. Uh, one achievement has been made. And the second is, of course, uh, Wang Yi, Foreign Minister Wang Yi tour, uh, you know, two North African countries and also two Western uh, African countries. So he will talk about uh, this China-Africa cooperation, especially uh, collective opinions for this upcoming right. this year, we will have uh, this nice uh, this China-Africa cooperation uh, forum forecast uh, meeting uh, in Beijing. So we will continue uh, to map out uh, how to further develop our bilateral, uh, this economic cooperation and the BI Belt and Road Initiative, how to uh, synergy with Africans development uh, uh, you know, this uh, 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 strategy as well. Right. Professor Libby, let me come to you. What are the key highlights? As you know, uh, the relationship between uh, China and Africa uh, are deepening. Uh, and China is becoming fast uh, the, uh, the most uh, important trading partner of African countries. So it's no surprise that uh, this, uh, um, the minister come to Africa to visit this country especially the countries that we visiting. Uh, Egypt is uh, a key partner, uh, not only in the economic uh, front, but also on the geopolitical side. And then you have um, uh, West Africa. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire is, uh, uh, is the, the, uh, the leading economy and um, the country that, uh, uh, that hosts most of the population of West Africa. So uh, I think it makes a lot of sense that uh, he visited those countries uh, to strengthen the relationship that exists between China and those countries. So the choice of uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Togo, uh, specifically in, in West Africa, how do you see this, um, you know, broadening, uh, you know, contributing to China's broader strategic uh, efforts in the region? China is, even if you take the case of uh, Cote d'Ivoire, for example, China is now the leading trading partner of the country, and this has not been the case in the past. Uh, over the past 20 years, uh, China has become this uh, important and strategic uh, uh, business uh, economic partner for, for this country. I think it goes always also for, uh, for Togo, so, and, uh, and uh, as you know, uh, we are in a new phase of uh, world diplomat uh, situation, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Togo, West Africa as a whole uh, is becoming uh, a very uh, important uh, point for the, for the geopolitical uh, 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 issue that is, that is uh, underpinning the world as of, as of now. So I believe that uh, uh, this visit will uh, reinforce this relationship and uh, also uh, demonstrate that China is uh, no longer uh, 
is a global player that is willing to threaten his uh, nations from East Africa, which is actually the new frontier for everything in the world today. Right. So I want to come back with you, uh, Gamal, because um, in Cairo, you know, uh, Foreign Minister Wong he expressed deep concern there over uh, you know the recent rapid escalation of the situation in the red sea he did also advocate for a press conference uh, a peace conference to be held over the gaza situation and called for a timetable on the implementation of a two-state uh, solution what is the implication what has been the implication of that speech it was very important because as you know the uh the two issues are, uh, uh, are intimately linked, the situation in Gaza, uh, the war uh, in Gaza, and the deterioration of the security situation in the Red Sea. Um, uh, as the war continues, it, it, it becomes increasingly difficult to contain the fallout from, from the Gaza war and to, to contain the fires that are, um, uh, that are popping up in other areas in the region as we are witnessing now in Iran, Syria, Iraq, uh, um, Lebanon, and uh, of course the, uh, the Red Sea. In his visit, the Chinese um, foreign minister um, was uh, keen to express um, um, uh, the view that uh, the situation in the Red Sea should be contained. Um, China is an important economic power, of course, and mm -hmm. it, uh, the, the, the commercial uh, trade uh, in the Red Sea is uh, a Chinese interest, it's a world interest, and of course it's, a, it's, a, it's an Arab um, security and commercial priority, the Red Sea, uh, the security in the Red Sea. So, but it would be very difficult to contain this uh, um, uh, deteriorating uh, situa situation in the Red Sea without stopping bringing the war uh, uh, in Gaza to an end and, and um, uh, bringing about a ceasefire immediately. This, would, this is the, um, the, uh, the safest and the, uh, the, the, this is the, the, the most speedy way to, um, to achieve um, a de-escalation de in the Red Sea and in the region at large. So, Professor Howen-Ping, I want to come back to your earlier point. Uh, you mentioned that this is the 34th consecutive year uh, when a Chinese foreign minister has visited Africa as their first overseas trip at the beginning of each year. What key economic and political significance do these visits actually hold? Uh, we all know Africa has been always serving as the very reliable islands for China. Uh, for example, now all the countries, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi visited, they all, uh, including Arab League, all support China's one China policy. You see, they're against those, uh, uh, you know, those way of doing, saying, uh, you know, supporting Taiwan's so-called independence move. And this is a core interest uh, for China's diplomacy. And also, uh, China also made clear we also support African countries uh, to, you know, to seek for its a suitable, uh, you know, the model, development model, mm -hmm. uh, fit with their own national condition. So we are against all those outside interfere uh, with Africans' affairs, especially those domestic uh, issues. So all this, uh, we are on the same page. And economically, um, no matter China's BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. or African Union's 2063 uh, uh, this, uh, agenda, we are all, you know, also on the same page. 
Professor Libby, let me come to you because West African countries have been experiencing a decline of Western influence. How might China's presence influence regional stability and are there potential security considerations in the choice of Togo and Cote d'Ivoire? China is uh, the model for Africa. You know, uh, over the last uh, 40 years, this, uh, this country uh, moved from an agrarian state to the industrial powerhouse that we know today. Uh, and China has, has been able to achieve that without colonizing any uh, uh, neighboring country or any foreign country. And so, so this is the model. China has uh, written the, the book on pragmatism and how to move from uh, one state to the other. And so I think uh, uh, the China's model is uh, something that uh, some African countries uh, may need to, to look at and uh, possibly uh, borrow some page from the book that China has, has written about how to move from one state to the other. So, as you know, uh, as Africa is moving ahead, there are some challenges, there are economic challenges, there are security challenges, and um, as, a world, as, a, as, a world, as a world, as we know today, there are many challenges. So uh, it's good for this uh, country to, uh, to develop, strengthen the relationship with China and also uh, China also has a role to play in advising those countries in time, of, in time uh, reinforcing this relationship with this country, right. whether on the economic or on the security front. All right. On that note, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll delve into the prospects of China-Africa relations in 2024. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with me, Gamal Roshdi, uh, Professor Juliam Libby, and Professor Ho Wenping. Gamal, let me come to you on this uh, question of uh, global governance because you have talked about uh, moving forward what uh, the Middle East countries would like to see uh, from global governance. Egypt is a new member of BRICS and a major country in the Arab and the African world. Uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi talked of uh, Egypt through BRICS jointly promoting uh, global governance. What is the implication for global governance, uh, particularly uh, with uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi coming out of Egypt going forward in the context of the Israel-Gaza conflict and Egypt's role here? So there are, there are three Arab countries who joined the BRICS or joined the BRICS uh, recently, um, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab uh, Emirates. Of course, it's very important because it, it makes the BRICS significant economic uh, and uh, potentially political bloc uh, that uh, reflects the power, the weight, the, the importance of the global south. Um, uh, in economic terms, it's, uh, it's a major change in the, in the, in the world uh, economy in terms of uh, fostering the cooperations between those important economies actually in the BRICS, it, the 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 um, the, uh, the fruit, the economic fruit is um, is certain. 
but in political terms, uh, it, um, it is to be, it remains to be seen whether this block would be um, uh, would speak with uh, uh, one political voice when it comes to the global uh, global issues. Uh, but of course, it's a, it's a step. Uh, it's, a, it's an important step in the direction of uh, uh, granting more weight to the to the global south. Um, uh, in the, in the context of the war on uh, in, in Gaza, um, uh, as you know, the, this war is not fought only in Gaza. It is, it is also fought in the uh, in the international uh, in the arena of international public opinion. We all have witnessed um, uh, rising voices coming from the global south, criticizing Israel, criticizing even the powers uh, who uh, support Israel and provide it with political, uh, with political cover. And uh, 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 frankly, uh, th there is a, a, a ri rising degree of uh, uh, a level of anger in the Arab region at the hypocrisy of those powers. Right, so Professor Howen P, let me come to you yeah. and uh, to find out exactly where Africa stands here because uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi talked about Africa and he said China opposes the imposition of one's own values on others, opposes the remodeling of other countries according to one's own standards and opposes interference in internal affairs under the pretext of human rights and democracy following up on that thought. Put this in context for us. How does China, how does Wang Yi see China supporting Africa in charting its own path? Yes, because all those uh, uh, words uh, given by Foreign Minister Wang Yi shows uh, actually this is uh, the way China has been gone through. Uh, the reason why China can stand up, you know, from a backward country 40 years ago now becoming, uh, you know, the second biggest economy in the world. That is exactly we have been choosing uh, our own uh, China model, uh, our own uh, development experiences, building on uh, with our own past, our culture, and also uh, you know all those different uh, uh, you know the situation in China. Because you cannot say impose uh, like a one size fits all. Uh, different country has a different history, different religion and the different uh, condition. So that is why uh, we come out with this uh, principle, saying every country should have this, this, its own right uh, to choose their own development model uh, to fit with their own uh, national condition. Because it has been proved, uh, you know, by China's own path, and also actually has been proved by United States, their own path, and even European country, their political system, and uh, if you go to uh, the detail, actually it's not that the uh, same as the United States. So actually, uh, even those uh, like uh, market economy, or sometimes the state gets very strong intervention uh, into these market forces, you know, even different administration, even a uh, lady such as time, and then uh, later the, the British government all comes with different way. So how come you can say just one size fits all? So right. that's uh, not a fit with the reality, uh, actually. So Gamal, I want to look ahead to 2024 uh, briefly and get your point of this. Um, how do you foresee the collaborations evolving in terms of economic cooperation and diplomatic ties? What new areas uh, do you see emerging in 2024? 
in terms of economic cooperation, uh, there is a great potential. Of course, the, tr the trade between uh, China and the Arab world exceed, exceeds uh, 300 uh, billion, more than 300 billion dollars uh, annually. And there is, um, there is room for uh, uh, increasing this figure, uh, much increasing this figure, because, you know, the areas of cooperation are uh, widespread. There is an interest of the, the, by the Arab countries in the Chinese economic initiatives, um, such as the Belt and Road and so on, and how to join those initiatives with Arab uh, visions um, of, the, uh, of the development visions. Uh, so, in, in economic terms, um, there is an interest by the Arab countries to see the Chinese uh, economy uh, vibrant and prosperous, um, uh, especially in, at this uh, time of um, um, global economic uh, um, uh, problems, uh, uh, inflation, uh, problems with the supply chain, and so on. Um, in terms of the, um, uh, as for the uh, political, um, uh, the political um, uh, aspect of the relationship, uh, we look forward uh, to a, a more active uh, role by China um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the region, in the Middle East, not only uh, uh, economically, but also politically. There are now uh, m more views coming from the global south about how to achieve um, a, a more stability in, in global governance. Um, China's, uh, uh, China's vision um, is a political vision uh, for uh, how to achieve stability in the region. Its role, its active role in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East is, uh, is much needed and we look forward to more Chinese engagement Professor Ho-Wang-Ping, your view here, looking ahead uh, to 2024, what are the anticipated developments in China-Africa relations and what new areas will we see emerging in China-Africa ties? In 2024, I think uh, we are going to have, uh, like, uh, uh, like I mentioned, uh, this four-cup meeting, the new one. So obviously, uh, we will continue uh, to, you know, strengthen China-Africa, these economic ties and the political mutual ties as well as our diplomatic uh, this, uh, cooperation in terms of uh, all those international uh, big issues, uh, even this uh, Palestine, the Israel, uh, this uh, conflict. Actually, as my colleagues just mentioned, China has been doing that, now playing uh, a greater role in mediating those conflicts, uh, like uh, those contradictions among the countries in the Middle East, uh, like uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, those two countries now uh, already reopened their embassy uh, in each other's uh, territory. And also, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, both countries, Iran, Saudi, together with UAE, all becoming the new members uh, in the, uh, this BRICS, uh, this uh, platform. So that shows already uh, China has been doing that. Of course, uh, we can do more, um, uh, you know, uh, rather than less. Right. Uh, Professor Libby, you have the final word. Uh, China is today is providing everything that the world wants uh, in terms of uh, industrial products. Uh, Africa is uh, looking also uh, to become an industrial base. So there is, there is some experience there to be shared by China with Africa. So I believe that uh, this type of uh, the strengthening of this relationship will go a long way to, uh, to help Africa achieve this objective, the economic, on the economic front. 
I'll see, I will see uh, continued uh, uh, strengthening of relationship. I will see that uh, China has become like uh, uh, the most, uh, uh, with a portfolio of about uh, 170 billion dollars uh, in loan, uh, China has become one of the countries that, uh, that is involved in the development of Africa. Uh, it has uh, developed uh, infrastructure projects, uh, even uh, uh, banking, even uh, uh, also some resources. So that's the only economic front. I think this will continue and this visit will uh, help uh, strengthen that. Also on the uh, security side, uh, as you see, uh, we have some challenges in uh, the region today. And those challenges have to be uh, tackled. Uh, and everyone that can provide uh, some help, everyone that gets get involved uh, is welcome. And then of course uh, you have the, the war, uh, geopolitical situation that we witness today with a lot of uh, unstable situation in uh, Ukraine, in the Gaza. And I uh, believe that uh, uh, the diplomatic tie between uh, Africa and China will uh, be uh, will be able to help, you know, make some headway in those situations that, is, uh, that are some threat to the world peace. That's what we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. Big thank you to our guest, Gamal Roshdi, spokesman for the Arab League Secretary General, Professor Julam Libi, economist and managing director of Mentally and Partners in Cote d'Ivoire, and Professor Hoven Ping, research fellow, Institute of West Asian and African Studies. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and as formerly known as Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To join us again next week for more at Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, goodbye. Welcome back. And that was a report on the uh, recent uh, visit by the Chinese foreign minister, uh, Yang Wei, uh, to uh, four African states uh, just over the last several days. And we're going to hear excerpts from another report on the current uh, relations between Africa, the African Union member states, and the People's Republic of China. Let's listen in. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi begins the year in Africa with the conflict in Gaza high on the agenda. Hello, I'm Arnold Naidu and this is The Heat. The ongoing visit by Foreign Minister Wang Yi to Egypt, Tunisia, Togo and Cote d'Ivoire continues the 34-year tradition of African countries being the first destinations of the new year. China's support has helped provide African countries with economic opportunities through its Belt and Road Initiative and other programs. But the minister's first stop in Egypt carried with it even more significance as the conflict in Gaza rages on. Adel El Makruki has more in this report. Egypt was the first stop in Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's Africa tour. He held talks with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, 
Wang delivered a congratulatory message from Chinese President Xi Jinping to LCC following his re-election last month. The Chinese top diplomat reiterated China's commitment to support Egypt's developmental aspirations. China and Chinese companies have through the past 10 years had their great participation in Egypt's development efforts. We value what China has achieved in development. It is a role model for developing countries for work and political will to progress and develop. We look forward to benefiting from the Chinese model. The fields of cooperation between us are numerous. Egypt once again reaffirmed its commitment to the One China principle, as well as cooperating with China in resolving regional crises. The war in Gaza topped the talks between the two foreign ministers. The Palestinian crisis has lasted for 76 years. This is a historic injustice that should not continue any longer. A ceasefire and an end to fighting must be reached as soon as possible. That is an ultimate priority that surpasses any other considerations. Ensuring the flow of aid is an ethical commitment that cannot be postponed. The resolutions regarding the aid to Gaza issued by the Security Council must be implemented. According to the two foreign ministers, lasting peace in the Middle East must be through the creation of an independent Palestinian state. Wang and Shukri said that the international community must endorse a time plan to reach that goal. Palestine, too, topped the talks with the Secretary General of the Arab League, Ahmed Abul Ghit. Wang's last official meeting in Cairo also discussed means to expand the China-Arab Cooperation Forum so that it can be a platform to support development in the region. Wang Yi's visit saw China and Egypt commit to boosting their bilateral relations throughout the next five years. The two foreign ministers have signed the executive program that will guide the two countries' comprehensive strategic partnership until 2028. Adel Mahroui, CGTN, Cairo. There's much to talk about. Let's get straight to our panel. Ho Wenping is a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute of West Asian and African Studies. David Monnier serves as the director of the University of Johannesburg Center for Africa-China Studies. Also with us is Aina Tangen. He's a senior fellow at the Taho Institute and the founder and chair of Asia Narratives. And Miret Mabruk is a senior fellow and the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Egypt and Horn of Africa program. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. Uh, Miret, uh, if we look at the current Israeli onslaught in Gaza after those Hamas attacks in October, that featured very highly on Foreign Minister Wang Yi's visit to Egypt. Uh, both these countries, China and Egypt, they back a two-state solution, but the Chinese foreign minister also expressed his concerns over what we're seeing right now, a widening of the conflict in the region. Let's listen to some of what he had to say. We stressed our concern about the expansion of the conflict in the region. We must mitigate the conflict and give priority to ensuring the safety of navigation in the Red Sea. More important is to begin implementing the two-state solution to open a political horizon for peace between Palestine and Israel and for peaceful coexistence between the Palestinian and Israeli peoples. China and Egypt will continue to enhance our coordination and cooperation to find a long-term, comprehensive and just solution to the Palestinian issue. So, Miret, how can Egypt and China put their resources together to bring an end to this carnage? What role can they play? So, um, first of all, thank you for having me. So, first of all, China is um, a major player on the international stage. It is a member of the Security Council, 
and um, as far as Egypt is concerned, it is um, indispensable to any solution to the um, to the current conflict. So I think between the two of them, they are both in a in a good position to um, to try and smooth matters along for what people hope will will possibly be uh, uh, um, you know a, a, an end to the, a ceasefire that comes sooner rather than later. The problem is, of course, that um, Israel appeals, appears to have the, the bit between its teeth, and um, the state of Israel's largest supporter, most devoted supporter, is the United States, and um, does not seem to be able to pull Israel back from its, um, its, its current path, which um, does not appear to be grinding towards a ceasefire anytime soon. Ho Wenping, uh, China and Egypt, they've established uh, a comprehensive strategic partnership. Both countries, of course, belong to the BRICS group, and China has invested very heavily in Egypt through its uh, Belt and Road initiative. How would you characterize the relationship between these two countries, and where do you see the potential for the most growth in that relationship? Yes, actually, even 2023, uh, when the foreign minister Wang Yi uh, you know, even the former one, China's foreign minister, we visited Africa. Also, Egypt is the uh, first stop to visit. You can see how uh, China-Egypt relationship uh, has uh, been built. Uh, you know, this uh, in, uh, back to 19, uh, 1956. Uh, that's exactly when the year 2006, when China uh, hosted its very first China-African summit in Beijing. Uh, that is to, that is, was to celebrating the 50 years anniversary uh, this China's diplomatic ties with Africa, so started from Egypt. So you can see the relationship can go back to very, very long. And also, I visited Egypt a number of times, like a Swiss Canal, uh, that uh, economic zone, and also a lot of uh, Confucian institutes uh, has been established in different uh, universities uh, in uh, Egypt, and also we have uh, infrastructure construction projects and uh, plus, uh, like the recently 10th Ramadan, uh, that uh, city uh, that uh, really linked to the new capital city uh, in, in Egypt. Even the new capital city, uh, a lot of uh, those uh, construction work has been done by Chinese company like uh, CBD, uh, the tallest building now also erected there. So given all those areas, uh, recently, uh, at the end of last year, China-Egypt also assigned this uh, cooperation to the outer space, uh, those uh, industry. China helped Egypt to set out its uh, number two, that the satellite, uh, now into outer space. So many new areas now also have been developed. So this is no surprise that this time uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, visited Egypt and uh, because uh, this uh, we just mentioned uh, because the Hamas Israel conflict uh, has been taken place now already entering into the fourth month yeah. so of course uh, China Egypt we have a lot uh, to share even in the uh, those hard issues uh, in the international stage David, of course, Africa features very highly on the Chinese foreign policy agenda. In 2021, the largest exporter of goods to China was, the, uh, was South Africa, and that was followed by Angola, and then the Democratic Republic of Congo. Nigeria uh, is the biggest importer of Chinese goods. How do you see this trade relationship evolving? I think the opportunity is there. As we have seen in recent uh, months that, and years that China... Uh, is opening up uh, its markets um, 
to African countries, particularly in the agriculture sector, um, and that in itself in line with uh, Africa's um, free trade area. There are a number of opportunities, new areas uh, in technology and other areas where uh, we're seeing the figures going much higher on an annual basis. And this visit in itself, I think it will go a long way uh, in strengthening and giving assurance, not just to Chinese but Africans, that the two uh, uh, brother-sister um, countries are united uh, in, in all fronts. Aina, at the um, China-Africa Leaders Dialogue, which took place in South Africa last August, African leaders thanked China for its assistance in their quest to modernize their economies, to uh, develop their countries. Uh, China, of course, has always emphasized uh, a win-win uh, strategy when it comes to its relationships with uh, the countries of Africa, indeed with the countries in the rest of the world as well. Um, how does this strategy play out uh, in Africa? Because there have been some concerns that China imports a great deal of primary goods from Africa and exports a great deal of manufactured goods to the countries of Africa, and the African countries want to change that. Well, obviously they do, and uh, China is assisting. Uh, they've been uh, helping them uh, develop technology. You know, you, you first have to start with a road. You cannot get your goods to market unless you can uh, physically get there. From that point on, you can start developing uh, your industries, and China has been more than happy to do that. You know, this, this trip is not just about, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the <clears throat> ease of visit. Uh, also, at the same time, you have uh, Vice Premier Li. He will also be uh, visiting four countries, including a group of 77. So this shows very clearly that China is interested in a broad range of issues across Africa and that they are continuing, despite all the things that are happening, Gaza, Red Sea, Horn of Africa, they are continuing to do the work. Uh, they'll be hosting the Forum on China-Africa Relations, uh, FOCAC, uh, later this year, they're following up on the leaders' uh, dialogue that was held last August. These are all parts of making sure that, yes, Africa does go forward, and they're listening to African voices, not dictating what they're going to give Africa. So, you know, from this point on, uh, it is very important uh, that the world understands that there's schism uh, that is developing between uh, not, you know, not edged on by China, but by actions of the U.S. and other places, um, they really do feel that uh, China has their back. Welcome back. And uh, those were excerpts uh, from a panel discussion on uh, African Union and People's Republic of China relations. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday. January uh, the 21st. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, <clears throat> just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of Wayne Shorter uh, from the 1966 album entitled Speak No Evil. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.